know, it's wild, but a lot of leaders want to hide all their mistakes, all the failures, right? Sweep them under the rug and make sure nobody ever hears about it. But here's the thing. Failure, experimenting, and losing is a great way to learn. Failure is an awesome teacher. And my mentor says that people crave authenticity. If you think you're perfect, right? No blemishes, no problems at all. That's a bunch of BS and we could sniff that out. Now, if you show up with the presence of a leader who says, hey, I tried this and it didn't work out. And here's what I learned so that we can grow as an organization. So you don't make the same mistake as me. Now, that's the type of leader that I want to follow. And lucky for you, today's guest, Dr. Eli Joseph, uh, that's his niche, uh, resilience and learning from failure. In fact, he wrote a book about it called The Perfect Rejection Resume. And so this, this topic, this idea of learning from failure, having a rejection resume, I think is definitely interesting. It is certainly a ruckus maker way of approaching life and leadership. And I hope you can listen with open ears and figure out how to apply these lessons to your school. Hey, it's Danny, Chief Ruckus Baker over at Better Leaders, Better Schools. And this show is for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after a few short messages from our show sponsors. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Leading change runs from July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by July 8th. Enroll by July 14th. Get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during covid Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Well, hello, Ruckus Maker. I am joined today by Dr. Eli Joseph, who is an author, an educator, and public speaker who currently serves as a faculty member at the Columbia University School of Professional Studies and as a business partner and medical examiner at Exam One, a Quest Diagnostics company. His new book is The Perfect Rejection Resume, A Reader's Guide to Building a Career through failure. Dr. Eli, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Danny. I really appreciate the intro. Absolutely. What a compelling title, you know, for a book. And and I want to set up this first question uh, because you told me in the fall of 2014, I think you mentioned you failed two courses. You were taking 21 credits, which 
I think the most I ever took was 18. That was a lot. The next semester, you took 30 credits, right? All in order to avoid academic probation. Tell us, tell us what's behind that story. So I came in Queens College as a dual athlete. I was a Division II athlete, and I was running track and playing basketball. So playing basketball during the wintertime, running track during the outdoor season. And as far as the athletic portion, that was nice, but my main focus was academics. And I thought that I was going to become a pharmacist, you know, as I graduate. And after my second semester of chemistry courses, I said, yeah, this is not going to be for me. So I went on, and it's funny because I actually failed that course, but I went on to pursue other activities and other endeavors, and I majored in mathematics, which was something I was good at. Not only was time was against my, like my, as far as time, I was working against time. And this is going to be a very important theme throughout this podcast. But I was so focused on graduating early. I wanted to graduate at least a year early so I can move on with my other endeavors, especially with the sports thing. I wanted to just, you know, get rid of just the idea and move on. So I took 21 credits, mathematics major, 21 credits, full of linear algebra, probability statistics, all the hard technical classes that I I I was taking at the time. And I failed those. I failed linear algebra and I failed probability and statistics, which is ironic that I'm teaching stats courses now. So in order for me to avoid academic probation and being like dismissed from Queens College, I had to get out of there. And the only way I, did, I needed to get out of there um, was to actually graduate. I didn't want to be empty handed. So I went on, I spoke with my advisor. He said, look, you have a 2.05 GPA, which is not good, but also it's not bad because you're not in that, 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 red, that red area. The best way you can get out of here is if you take 10 courses. I, it was a, I, was a upper, I was an upper sophomore at the time, lower junior, upper sophomore, in which we were basically between the, the, the second and the third year. And he said, look, you have to take 10 classes and you need at least 60 credits in order for you to get out of here. So, so I said, okay, let's, all right, how, how can we get on? And, and I needed his approval. I needed the approval of the, of the school that, that I was with because you can't take that much credit. I think the most you can take at a time without any type of objection is about 21. I'm at Queens College, a CUNY, a CUNY school. So I needed 30. And I said, look, let's, lock, let's knock it out. And lo and behold, I ended up with a 3.0 GPA, which is not, which is not the best, but it, it got the job done. And I ultimately graduated at the age of 20 years old with a bachelor's degree in mathematics. Yeah. Well, congrats on, uh, on finishing and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, GPA, that just helps you get out and maybe first couple of jobs, that kind of thing, it might be relevant, but then it's all about the value you create in the world. So it's, it's all, it's all good. I have to ask you a basketball question, and then we'll get back to what we're really talking about, which is uh, the rejection resume and failure. But uh, what what were you? So point guard, shooting guard, something else, small forward? Point guard, yeah. I was a point, point guard. guard. Was, All right. Yeah, I was a point guard, yeah. That's great. <laughs> I, didn't have, I didn't have height. Yeah, I didn't have the height to become a, a shooting guard, a big guard, or a small forward. So I was a point guard. But the speed in the handles, huh? Okay. 
That's cool. Basketball is my favorite sport. Uh, started to really love football or soccer, as we call it here when I lived over in Europe. Um, but I just, I have, I have utmost esteem for uh, folks that play basketball. So thank you for answering that question. So, okay, back to why we're here. You have this concept of a, a rejection resume. And I love it because I think, you know, failure rejection really can teach us a lot, you know. And so you said it's ironic you failed stats and now you're teaching it. I think actually that makes a lot of sense because who better to teach it than somebody who might have struggled or whatever with the concept. So tell us, you know, your take on the rejection resume. So it, it actually started when I was in, when I was an undergrad. It started when I was applying for internships and I was just getting regret emails. I thought it was easy. Um, You know, you go to school, it's a straight path. You go to school, you do well, and then you apply for internships and then you graduate and you move on and you climb up the the corporate ladder. I thought it was as linear as that whole entire model. And it turns out that I had to apply and send thousands. We're talking thousands. I, I spent... I spent the majority of my time applying and sending at least 700 applications to J.P. Morgan Chase alone. I, I, I wanted to apply mathematics. So that's, that was my track, the applied mathematics track and apply it into Wall Street and, and economics. And I thought, you know, I'm going to apply to internships and I'll, I'll work and I'll work during the summertime. And then, you know, I'll eventually get a return offer. And then full time after upon graduation, I should be fine. And that was not the case. So I started to compile a ton of rejection um, from those organizations. And I said, okay, you know what? This is a pattern, right? And instead of feeling sorry for myself, I just continued to move on and, and see where, where it lands. All I needed was one opportunity. And it didn't present itself until late, until I started with my master's program. But that's where the idea of the rejection resume comes into play. So I wanted to compile like, all the rejection, all the failures, right? Failing two courses, that's a part of the rejection um, resume. Um, also, dealing with heartbreaks and personal stuff, that's also entitled, that's also can be added into the um, resume itself. And I figured, you know, one day, and I need to feel comfortable sharing that story and writing a book about it because no one, especially in our generation, talks about failure and talks about struggling with rejection. We always like to talk about how we succeeded and how we graduated. We share those stories on social media, but we don't talk about the complete opposite, the, the, um, the process that took us to the, um, to the promised land. So I wanted to talk about that. And I think the, the best concept and the best selling point was the rejection resume. Yeah. No, and like I said, you know, failure is such a, such a great teacher. And yeah, it's so easy to uh, share the successes and the fake successes. You know, I could re- I could rent a Maserati or whatever <laughs> and pose pose by it, but doesn't mean I own it. You know. Uh, anyways, and I think through failure, through rejection, that actually just makes you real. And one of my mentors, you know, he he says all the time that people crave authenticity. And so, when you created this rejection resume, was that something you'd actually send out along with the with the resume, or was that more of a personal tool for you? Uh, but how did, how did you it, use it? It started as a personal tool. It started okay. as a personal tool. But I know one day I wanted to market the rejection resume. Yeah. So I would send my resume to the employers. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for me to highlight my accomplishments and how I can become an asset to the organization. However, the rejection resume, it provides the, the to your 
point, that realness. And I wanted to share that on LinkedIn to gravitate and, and, and bring in that community for, of recruiters, hiring managers, to bring that community over and say, okay, you know what? You may have accomplished so much, but I like this concept. Perhaps you've, you've inspired me to share my rejection resume. And I didn't want to incite a rejection resume challenge, but I kind of did in a way where I wanted other people to share their realities and how they've overcome failure and rejection to get to that point. So the best way to use it, the best way to use it, and, and, and this is for you know, the listeners here, and I want to disrupt. They want to disrupt things here in the market. They would, yeah, I want them to share that resume online so that way it provides that context to their story. And it's, it makes it perfect for their story as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it'd be powerful, you know, for schools. I mean, as the leader to model things you're trying out and uh, experiments you're running that, that uh, aren't successful and talk about that failure and what you learn from it. And, you know, we, we want our faculty, you know, to take, take risks. And the irony is that many systems, school systems, talk about innovation, risk, and experimenting, and that it's safe to fail. When in actuality, when you stick your neck out a little bit and do things just a little bit against the grain, you get slammed with the two by four. And so if you, if you can create a psychologically safe and authentic space where people can take risks and learn from failure, that's the only way uh, to take education to the next level. And the last thing I'll say on this, you know, we're, we're so great focused or can be in education. And so helping students uh, wrestle with the tension of failure, but also what people, you know, what you learn through that process could be a real gift to your school. So, so in your book, Eli, you, you say something uh, that's wild. You say pride is the devil and shame is your angel. What do you mean by that? So when we look at, it's funny because of the recent events that happened, especially in, in culture, popular culture, we realized that pride can get in the way of some people, right? And pride can serve as that, that evil that evil conscious and people tap into that. They black out in the name of pride and they, they tend to do irrational things here. When we think of pride, right? We, we think of this, when we get it, we get it from validation. We get it from people saying, hey, congratulations, I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. Congratulations, you've accomplished so much. And what happens is, you know, you tend to you tend to stray away from the the humble beginnings that got you to that point um, that you've accomplished so much. And you know, there's this thing that you know it takes years. It takes 20 years to accomplish something huge within your within your life. But it can only take five minutes to just destroy it all at once. And pride taps into that. It's that devil that taps. It's that evil spirit that taps in to say, okay, you know what? That person tested your, your intellectual abilities. I want you to, to, to destroy that person and, you know, embarrass that person. And in a way, you're embarrassing yourself because you're, you're acting out of rage and out of emotion. Shame is basically that angel that comes after the fact that you basically destroyed your, your, your livelihood and you made irrational decisions. Shame comes afterwards and let you know, hey, you made a big mistake. And, um, you know, you, you basically have to, now you have to go on crisis mode. You have to basically go on, on, on a tangent, on, on apologizing 
um, spree, right? You're apologizing to the people that you've hurt and you're, you're apologizing, apologizing to people. And this tends to happen after you've been terminated, after you've been fired or demoted, after you've been suspended because of your action. So that's the concept of pride being the devil and shame being an angel because shame, it, 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 it humbles you. Humbles you. It, it keeps you humble. It keeps you humble and, and you remain, you may remain in that state that got you there. Right. We want to we want to always revert to that state of you working so hard and you, you know, turning your head down and getting you there rather than you just saying, hey, I'm I'm the greatest person in the world and everyone should buy down to me. That's that pride kicking. In, and that's the concept between, you know, pride and shame. Motivating you to clean up the mess is what I'm hearing you say. Got it. Well, another concept that I think uh, I'd love for you to unpack is said, you know, you said it may not be your fault. But we need to blame you. What? Tell me. Tell me more about that. It may not be your fault, but we need to blame you. So, in, in popular culture, um, so when we talk about like you know, and this is the best example that I I will have to come recently. I think I'm not sure you're a basketball fan, so you kind of know what's going on in the NBA. But Coach Frank Vogel, he's no longer the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, right? See you. <laughs> <laughs> Two years, you're out. Yeah. So, but then again. It's not his fault. You can't blame him entirely for the demise of the Lakers. I mean, he won. He won the championship. He won the championship. And next thing you know, two years later, he is out. He's, he's out. But it's not his fault. Um, we look at injuries. Injuries have played that team, right? It's not his control. These are things that he can't control, whether it's injuries, whether it's um, the players missing shots. Players missing wide open shots, making bad plays. He's not the person to blame. No, sorry. He's not the person at fault. However, we have to blame him. He's the person to blame because we need to hold someone accountable. And he is, since he's the coach, he's, the, he's basically the first-hand manager of these players. We need to blame someone, and that's him. So when I, look, when I say that, you know, it may not be your fault, and we translate into our everyday lives, there are things that we can't control. Traffic. Um, we can't control traffic. We can't control whether or not we woke up. No, well, we can't control that. Things that are out of our control, the weather, traffic, um, other people, we can't control those things. However, we need to hold ourselves accountable whenever something bad happens. Because the question that we need to ask ourselves is, who gets, who gets the, the, the when, when everyone gets the reward and we succeed, who do we give credit to? We give credit to ourselves and everyone around us and, you know, our friends and family. We tend to, we, we thank everyone. Thank God, right? We thank everyone around us. But when things go wrong, who are we going to blame? And we tend to basically pick on others and we tend to point fingers on others and, and blame everyone else. But in reality, you have to blame yourself. So that's basically the concept behind, you know, as far as it may not be your fault, but we have to blame you. Right, right. Yeah, I get, I get that. And I'm wondering, too, if you have any tips around it, because obviously the, the ruckus maker listening is most likely a principal or assistant principal, although, you know, there's uh, classroom teachers who listen, people in central office as well, but mostly principals, APs. Uh, and so they're going to they're gonna have to uh, sit, you know, with that blame because stuff will happen. And, you know, if they're at the top, right, they're going to look f- to you to be accountable for that. But that doesn't make it feel great. And maybe the answer is it never feels great. But do you have any insight in terms of just how to become more more comfortable with this assertion you're making? So a part of you know taking on the accountability is also being able to have, 
you know, strategies to, to solve problems and solve issues here. Right. Just know that, you know, but but what I'm what I'm telling the assistant principals and the leaders of, of these institutions is before you point a finger, just know that there are three pointing back at you. Right. When you point that finger, there's three pointing back at, at you and you have to be accountable in terms of how to solve issues. And perhaps if the, the person that you're pointing the finger at or the issues that you're pointing pointing towards, you have to re, you have to talk to them maybe consult with them to figure out ways to solve certain issues and, um, you know, just be collaborative about it rather than just being destructive and, and pointing that blame. So, you know, there are different tips and different strategies that we have to, you know, align ourselves with when it comes to different situations. And that's the best way to solve it. And on top of that, you know, relieve ourselves from, you know, all the negativity that may have happened within a certain situation. Got it. Well, Eli, I'm enjoying this uh, conversation. We're going to pause here just for a few quick seconds to get a message in from our sponsors. And when we get back, I want to talk about the rent being due every day. Learn how to successfully drive school change and help your diverse stakeholders establish priorities and improve practice in leading change. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Topics include adaptive leadership, culture, equity, and more. Leading Change runs from July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by July 8th. Enroll by July 14th. And get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during COVID? Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. And we're back with Dr. Eli Joseph. I highly encourage you to check out his new book called The Perfect Rejection Resume, A Reader's Guide to Building a Career Through Failure. And I'm previewed that we'll talk about here, you know, this concept of the rent being due every day and how time is your biggest competitor. What do you mean by that? So when, I'm at, when I say that rent is being due every day, we have also have to think of it like this. So we are our tenants. And the landlord, in this case, is our goals, right? We, we are our goals, and we're basically renting time out of our days to accomplish each goal. And our goals five years ago are going to be different from the goals today. And the goals today will be different from the goals to, you know, five years from now. So when I look at it as we are paying our rent, we have to make sure that, number one, our rent and the currency of the rent that we are paying every single day is our effort. That is our effort behind our, our, our rent being due every day. And when we pay off that rent, whether we win or lose or whether we succeed or fail, it doesn't matter. It's just as long as we put forth that effort, 
and then you, you pay off the, you know, our goals, our goals will be met. And then we'll, we'll, we'll sign a lease with another goal. And our, another, our next landlord will be the next goal here. So I, I noticed that, you know, if you place a deadline on some things and the deadline can be every single day, then you will be inclined to pay off the rent. And this, this leads to our next notion that time is our greatest competitor. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's connected too, right? Back to uh, what you can control and you can control the inputs and your effort and that you're doing the tasks that you believe will lead to the outcomes that you want being the goals. Um, so I, I think I'm understanding what, you, what you're saying there. And when we talked, you know, in the pre-interview too, just to, to see that you'd be great for our show and thank you. You've been great on the podcast. I, I love to ask my guests, you know, like, what does success look like? What, what's your goal, especially if you're an author? Because it's important to me, you know, and metacognitively for the ruckus maker listening, I'm unpacking this because you should know your people's goals so that you could personalize the experience to help them be successful. So for an author, for example, like Dr. Eli, it's like, hey, do you want to sell more books? Are you trying to grow an email list, so on and so forth, get clients, you know? And for you, what you said was really interesting. And I'm, I normally wouldn't share this on the show, but I think for the, the savvy ruckus maker listening, there is a translation to leadership, which is this. Too many schools try to be everything to everyone instead of being specialized at a very small amount of things. And you told me that success was to establish a niche versus like millions of book sales, right? And so instead of me guessing why that's important to you, tell me why like really niching down, you know, and establishing that is, is so important for you. It gives me the identity that I'm known for resilience, right? I'm not known to just sell a million books at a time, right? That's big. I, I always say this, and I, and I said this before on the pre-interviews, that selling books was never my goal. But the idea of the perfect rejection resume, that was a byproduct of my niche as well. That's the byproduct of what I, what I want to talk about and getting my voice out there. So it's more so of, I want to talk about resilience and how to overcome failure and success based on my experience. And we can just conversate from that point and build that conversation. Oh yeah. And by the way, here's a book. If you want to buy it, you can buy it. Right. And there's some, there's some more, there's, there's some more insight that you can get from that book. But my goal is not to say buy my book. I want to become a New York times bestseller. And I want to, you know, I want to become that, that established author. No, I would rather become an established scholar first and establish a, a, an idea and share that idea with others and build from that rather than becoming an international best-selling author. Which has, in my opinion, now today, becoming a, a bestseller, it's lost its value because people can buy their way into that. You can't buy your way in terms of establishing your niche. And it takes the, the hard work, the effort every single day to establish that rather than just paying off yourself, paying, paying other, you know, distributors to, to sell books. You know, people can buy their way through that, but you can't buy your way through establishing that niche that, that you need. Yeah. And you do that, you know, and, and I think some of the other uh, concepts that I'm hearing too is like, uh, you know, the, the resume these days, it's like the results you create and the value you create for others, like doing that and consistently showing up. People are watching. You don't think they're watching, but they are. And I, I actually recently wrote a blog post called What I've Learned Publishing uh, Publishing Three Books. And I thought it might be a little risky, but I did it anyways. And I said a word of warning. You, 
just what you said. You could buy your way onto bestseller lists. And I don't know what you've come across, but there was a company I was looking at. Amazon would have cost me seven and a half thousand dollars. I could have been an Amazon and Barnes and Noble bestseller for fifteen thousand. And if I wanted the Wall Street Journal or US Today, it was sixty thousand each to become a bestseller. And it's just numbers. They have a massive like million people email list. They'll run your book for a ninety nine cent sale and say buy Dr. Eli or buy Danny's book, and uh, that's that's how you did it. It's not like you're Malcolm Gladwell, right, or Maya Angelou that earned those sales, you bought your way there. So there's reasons to do that too. And I think there's a business case um, for some folks, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. And uh, it sounds like it wasn't for you either. Cool. Well, Eli, it's been great having you on the show. My last two questions I ask everybody, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So if you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for just one day, what would your message read? The message would read that world records exist for a reason. And it's through this notion that if you think it's possible to accomplish something that is impossible, then there's a possibility that nothing is impossible. Mm. That's How about message. that? Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a mind expander for sure. Yeah. And Eli, <laughs> if you're building your dream school from the ground up, you're not limited by any kinds of resources. The only resource connected to your marquee, the only uh, limitation, excuse me, is your imagination. Nothing is impossible. How would you build your dream school and what would be the top three guiding principles? The top three guiding principles I would want, if how to build my dream school, I would tell all of my students and all of my staff and faculty members that you have to at least fail one every single day. You have to fail once, right? And you build from that lesson. You can succeed how many times you want, but you have to fail at least once. That's one of the major principles. Because if you fail once, you feel more comfortable failing. You feel more comfortable trying things. And this is when things become possible to accomplish here. You have to fail once. I will also, and this is this is something that, a topic that I would like to talk about in another in another conversation. But there, you see how we we um, we take tests alone, isolated, closed book, alone. In my school, that won't be the case. There will be a universal problem solving case scenario, and we will have to solve things together as a team. And every student, every faculty member, every student within these classrooms will be assessed and, and, and graded based on their participation and their efforts in this universal problem solving. So if there was a project, like, for example, solving um, worldwide pollution, I want to see how every single student can basically work together. Because once they graduate, once they graduate, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be taking a test alone. You have to reach out to your networks and reach out to your advisors and sponsors to, to basically solve a universal problem. That's the second, that's the second principle that I would like to talk about. And the third, um, the third principle is also realizing and understanding how to use scarce resources in applied economics. Um, so economics, as we may know it, is the study of allocating scarce resources. But I would like to have that, um, it's, it's, it's more so in vision. I would like to be practical rather than theoretical here in a sense. So, and it goes back to the first um, principle of failing at least once. 
So every classroom, I'll have a, I'll have a rotation where every, every year or every semester, people would rotate classrooms and, and the teachers. And within these classrooms, we will have a limit, a limit, whether it's chalk or whether it's a chalkboard. I want to see how you know, we can learn using a limitation of resources, whether it's a lack of PowerPoint slides. So that's, that would be amazing here. And that way it, it brings in that more, it brings in more of a, a practical and a, a real life um, perspective in my school. For sure. You know, constraints are a beautiful thing and uh, highly recommend Ruckus Makers also check out, there's a book called A Beautiful Constraint, but that by putting limits on things, that's how innovation, you know, occurs. So I actually, I want to challenge any Ruckus Maker listening, like was like, oh, that third principle, that's crazy. It's actually very, very awesome, you know, and uh, you need to think about how constraints could actually help you bring your school to the next level. So very cool. Now we covered a lot of ground, Eli. And so if there was just one thing for a ruckus maker to remember from our conversation, what would that be? The one thing that a ruckus maker can take away from this conversation is the concept of no trace, no case. You have to develop a track record of failures and success in order for you to make a case of an expert in your own endeavor or in your own field. No trace, no case. So you have to put in, and I think, I'm not sure, it was um, Malcolm Gladwell who talked about the 10,000 hours. Right, right. But no trace, no case. That's, that's basically, it falls along the lines of you have to create and, and document the track records of failure and success in order for you to become that expert in your field here. That's the number one key takeaway. And, and in doing so, you have to try. Trial and error is important, and you will definitely develop and cultivate that huge list of, um, you know, failures and develop a good sounding rejection resume. And you can share it. You can share it how you how you overcome that. So that's the number one key takeaway: no trace, no case. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.